0: All right, so before I jump into the story, let's go ahead and set the time. So the text says this, after Jesus had said this, he went on going ahead to Jerusalem as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. Now, I have a map on the screen for everyone to see to sort of orient yourself as to where we are geographically. Um, So do you have that map? Yep. Thank you. you. So it's kind of hard to tell, but I'll just show you. So Jesus is coming from your right side. I'm assuming that's probably east, but who I don't know. Um, And so he's he's taking this road up the Mount of Olives. At the top, you can look over and see a lot of the city of Jerusalem. So then there's the descent down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. And so when he says he's entering the Mount of Olives, he's there near Bethpage, right? At the top of that mountain. Now, uh, commentaries talked about sort of the scene of this area. Now, most of the road leading up to the Mount of Olives is mostly like barren desert, right? No foliage, no life, no nothing. And then as you uh, climb the ascend of the Mount of Olives and you get to the top, foliage becomes visible and greenery um, sort of overtakes your eyes, right? Especially in the season that we're at in our story. So it's Passover. Uh, Passover is about the same time as now. That's why we celebrate uh, Easter now because we know it's about this time. And uh, just like there, their spring, just like here, uh, their spring becomes sort of when life and life abundant begins to flow, right? Um, Maybe not in Chicago, but in other parts of the country, right? But what a picture of what was to come, Right? The universe up until this point had been on that journey toward Jerusalem. And right when you thought it would all be a barren wasteland, you get to the top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus comes bringing life abundant, right? I don't think that's a mistake. And as I said, it was Passover season. So if you don't know, Passover was the celebrating of God passing over the firstborn Israelites in Egypt when they used the blood of the sacrificial lamb above their doorways. Um, the Israelites did in Egypt. And, And God killed the firstborns of those who did not do that, right? And he passed over the Israelites. And so I can't help but consider the gravity of this situation too. The once and for all sacrificial lamb that was alluded to and represented in those moments has arrived in Jerusalem. So we have a picture of where we are, right? Where we are and when we are. So I want to go ahead and dive into those two questions. first one being, is Jesus king? And it's a little bit quicker, and it sets up the second one. So Um, I think there are three reasons we can point to why we know that at least the text and Jesus himself are pointing to the fact that he is king. The first one is the fact that it's a triumphal procession to begin with, right? You do not have people laying down their cloaks, waving palm fronds, if someone isn't important, Right? The in, You guys hear me okay? I moved a little bit. Uh, the entry of a, of a king to a city creates an important event, especially when he has been on mission. Uh, and in this case, that's Jesus' ministry, right? So Jesus is returning from his mission, his ministry. If that's all we have, though, uh, it really just points to Jesus being sort of important. And so I want to go ahead and go into the second reason, and this really is our money maker. When we go back to the text, there's this weird story of him going to get a colt, right? Now, many of you know from uh, maybe Sunday school as a kid or reading the other gospels that this is a donkey. We know that because this has been alluded to or this was written about in all four gospels. So, but why is it important that it's a donkey? Jesus, uh, or sorry, Matthew Points out why this is important. He tells the same story of Jesus, but then adds this part at the end. I have it on the screen. This took place. do right, yep. This took place to fulfill, fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the full Of a donkey. So the author in Matthew is pointing to a prophecy in Zechariah, which is in the Old Testament uh, years and years before Jesus was even thought of. Uh, Well, he was thought of, but before he was born, yeah. Don't give me that look, Jason. Um, We'll get more to this later, but it is Jesus' intent here to point to his own kingship through the selection of a donkey, right? Jesus intentionally selects a donkey because he knows his Bible. And he knows uh, the prophecy that the king will enter in on a donkey. Now, some of you may say this, Jimmy, Jesus was well-read and knew the prophecy. He could have just picked a donkey. It doesn't prove he is actually king. And I would agree with you on that. But I think the important thing here is not necessarily if this proves that Jesus is king. The important thing here is what Jesus believes about himself, right? And he believes that he is king. Because if he did die, go to the grave, and get up three days later, then it's important to know what Jesus said about himself. Because I'm inclined to begin to believe what he said about himself if he actually did get up from the grave. And without one ounce of doubt, Jesus is calling himself king here. Right. Now, if this is not enough for you, don't worry, there's more. Because there's another reference later in the passage in Luke. And as Jesus rides in, the crowd begins to sing, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you guys want me to sing it? No, thank you. Okay, good. Got it now. Uh, I'm not. Um, so this passage comes from Psalm 118. And while it's pretty obvious that this highlights kings, uh, Jesus' kingship, right, um, it actually highlights it even more than you think. See, people would actually sing this psalm when they entered Jerusalem for Passover. So this is actually a very, very common thing to hear as you're entering Jerusalem. People would sing the psalm. And so let's look uh, at the original psalm. I have it here. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. So pretty much the same thing, right? What they were singing. It's actually slightly different. If you look closely, this psalm says what? blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? But what were the, the um, disciples and what were everyone around singing? They're saying, blessed is the king, right? So it is intentional that Jesus is coming into the city as a king. You guys catch that? So as we would, if, if I were a Jew in uh, this area at the time, I would be singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? A little bit of a proclamation about myself and all of us entering the city. But they're singing, blessed is the king. And so they're just highlighting Jesus' kingship a little bit more, right? And if you don't believe me, some of the Pharisees knew this. They knew that they were highlighting the kingship of Jesus, right? You notice that they asked Jesus to rebuke his disciples for singing, but think about it. If everyone else in the area is singing a similar psalm, why are they rebuking just Jesus' disciples, right? I think it's a little bit odd, but they know what is happening. They immediately know the claim of Jesus' royalty and authority that is being made in our scene. Are you with me? So I think it's pretty clear. Even if you don't believe Jesus is king, Jesus has at least saying that he is king, right? So if he is communicating he is king, I think he's also communicating what kind of king he is. And so I want to highlight uh, with the rest of our time four aspects of of Jesus's kingship and what kind of king he is. So what kind of king is Jesus? The first kind of king is a humble king. Where do we get this from the text? The fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy points directly to the humility of Jesus' royalty. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read what the actual prophecy says. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Other translations uh, use the word instead of lowly, they use the word humble. So it's pointing directly, pretty uh, obviously, to the humility of Jesus, right? But what does it mean for Jesus to be humble? I know if you like Kendrick, it means to sit down, or people will tell you to stay humble. Um, there are a lot of it. That one person got the Kendrick Lamar reference, thank you. Um, a lot of people will maybe, you know, stay humble, do this, do that, right? But the Bible talks about what Jesus' humility is. Look at Philippians 2. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human liken, uh, likeness, and being found in appearance As a man, here it is. This is the important part. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus' humility led him straight to the cross. Why is this humility? Because Jesus, for a brief moment, gave up his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. He condescended to the manger as a human and died the death we deserved all because he saw the situation we were in, separated from God and considered us. Jesus considered us. That's his humility. God considered us. That's why he went to the cross. He considered the other person. So Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey so that we could ride on out of here as sons and daughters. Jesus is not just the humble king though, right? Right? I think that this text also points to Jesus being a merciful king. Now, I didn't include these four verses in the original reading uh, because I'm not trying to explain the whole prophecy here. That's a a lot. Um, But I quickly want to consider the implications of what Jesus says right after our original passage in Luke. So I'm going to read verses 41 through 44 real quick. It says this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, Even or if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, and then he goes on to say that the city will be destroyed. What's going on here? Jesus has just been saying about, right? And he, he's approaching the city, going down the descent of the Mount of Olives. And then he begins to weep. Jesus wept again, right? Why? Because he recognizes the state of the city. He knows the hearts of those who he is approaching and the, uh, the hearts of those who are with him. And they did not know on that day what would bring them peace. And Jesus weeps. So Jesus has compassion on the crowds here. You see what, what's happening? That he sees the crowds. He doesn't know what... He knows that they don't know what they're missing. And he weeps. But it's just more than that. It's, it's mercy. It's not just compassion. It's mercy. See... It's not just that they don't know the peace that comes from Jesus, and so they ignore Jesus. No, they're, they're about to despise him a few days later. Shout, crucify him, spit on him, deny him, turn their backs on him. Some that sang for him on the road will jeer at him on the cross in a matter of days. And yet, Jesus enters the city. Because on that day, they did not know what would bring them peace. But Jesus knew it was himself, the Prince of Peace, his death at their hands, so they could know him. Jesus is a merciful king. But Jesus, it's, it's not just enough to be a humble king and a merciful king, right? Let me tell you, I'm quite humble and merciful myself. Potentially the most humble in the room, right? Right? But I don't know why you guys are laughing. Um, But I am not king, right? It's not just enough to be those things. Jesus is also a powerful king. How so? I think there are two obvious ways and one subtle way in which Jesus is a powerful king. The more obvious ways point directly to his power, right? When some of the religious leaders tell Jesus to rebuke his disciples, Jesus pulls out the baller response. I tell you, If they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out, right? Jesus is so glorious, so powerful, that if you don't worship him, your pet rock will. I knew that would hit with this crowd. You guys are a little bit, I wasn't going to say old. Or older, older. Girl, Dean, do you know what a pet rock is? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. Another way, let's move on. Dave, I'm sorry. No, Um, another way Jesus exhibits his power. Leading up to his return to Jerusalem, Jesus let those around him know exactly what was going to happen, right? So in Matthew 16, it records this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is before Jerusalem, right? Jesus explains that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus exhibits his power to show that he knows the results of what are to come, right? He knows the results of his life. He knows what's going to happen. And I think that points to Jesus' mercy again too, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen and still enters the city. And that is vitally important. Let me tell you that, that Jesus knew what was going to happen. But that's not the most ultimate way that Jesus shows that he is a powerful king in this passage. See, I have this on the screen. Sovereign power is not just the ability to know the results, but the ability to affect the results, right? You can guess the right games in your March Madness bracket via top-level analysis. But if you aren't playing in the game, you have no power to affect the results. Uh, I have another example for you that I've used before, um, and people already made fun of me that I was going to use it before, but I'm going to anyways. Um, now, Jamie, my wife, and I have been married for six years, one week and a day. Um, and through that time, we've gotten to know each other very well. I've learned more and more about her and she about me. And you learn what, is, what each other is good at or bad at, right? Jamie has come to find that I'm great at taking, at, uh, at taking life lightly, I'm great at dancing. I'm great at laying down. Um, I'm bad at being serious. I'm bad at digesting food. Um, And I'm bad at being quiet. I've learned that Jamie is incredibly smart, incredible mom, incredible teacher. She's good at a lot. But there's one thing that I'm better than her in. And that one thing, I'm going to hold over her forever because I can. Because it's the only thing I have. So please don't take it from me. Um, it's chess. I am significantly better than chess, or at chess than Jamie. Like, it's not even close, actually. She, we have played multiple times, and she has never won. And as a result, she will no longer play with me. Yeah, it's disappointing. Um, but, so, let, why do I bring this up? Because my chess ability is greater than Jamie's chess ability, right? And so as a result, if I wanted to, I could throw the game. I could let her win. I have the power to affect the results. Now, I never will because, again, it's the only thing I have on her. But I could, right? Now, let's take a, a different person as an example. So the person on your screen now, uh, his name is uh, Ramesh Babu Pragnananda. Uh, he goes by Prague. He is 16 years old. Maybe I didn't. did the picture, not translate. Oh, I'm, so, I'm so sorry. So he's 16 years old. He's from India. Um, he's a grandmaster in chess. And he recently just beat Magnus Carlsen, uh, who I guess is like the Michael Jordan of chess. Um, yeah, okay, I've got a lot of yeses. I was going to tell you if you, you could ask Jeff if you wanted to. He's a big Magnus Carlsen fan. Um, now, if Prague and I played in a game of chess, what's going to happen? Thanks, guys. Um, but, it's, but it's true. Yeah, I, I need some humility this morning. Um, Prague is going to destroy me, right? One of those, like, three move, and it's over, right? His ability, his power to affect the results is far greater than mine. I bring this up because I do, th- I do not think we talk about the power of Jesus enough. Colossians says that Jesus is before all things. He created all things, and he holds all things together meaning at every moment he is holding together every atom of everything, right? That is the power of Jesus. And why is that important in our current text? Because if Jesus didn't have all authority and all power, his entering Jerusalem and being crucified does not have uh, eternal significance, right? It would be a sad story and that's it. Without power, the cross was less an act of love and more a fate unchangeable and unchosen. Let me say that again. Without power, without it, the cross was less an act of love and more a fate unchangeable and unchosen. If Jesus couldn't affect the results, him going to the cross does not matter, right? It's a made-up story about someone who died and his followers have to save face a little bit. And yet... Because he is the all-powerful king, because he holds all things together, because he holds the life, the breath of every living creature in his hand, including the lives, the breaths of those who shouted crucify him and the lives of those who did crucify him, Jesus, with a snap of the finger, could have been out of it. And yet, in choosing death, he chose reconciling love. In choosing death, he chose for the sins of the world to be paid for. In choosing death, he chose to be the Passover lamb. In choosing death, he chose us. With power, which Jesus has, the cross was a necessary choice of reconciling love. Jesus could have had all the mercy uh, for us in our situation, but if he didn't have the power to change it, he isn't king. Which leads to our last one. So Jesus truly is a humble king if he truly is the merciful king, and if he had the power to exact his mercy on us, Jesus is the Messiah king. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem marked the beginning of the kingdom of God reigning on this earth. It was Jesus walking into his death saying, you may think you won now death, but in three days I'm getting up. It was Jesus saying, they do not know peace now, but they will. See, the Philippians passage about the humility of Jesus did not end with his, with his death, right? Let me read it. It says, Jesus being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, right? That's where I stopped. But listen, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of our Father. So Jesus, because he is humble, Jesus, because he is merciful, Jesus, because he is powerful, he is the saving king. He is the Messiah king, right? I don't know. I got a little bit of an empty church this morning because I'm getting excited and... You guys are a little quiet. What's our response to this, right? What are we going to do in light of this? I want to take us back to that picture of the people surrounding Jesus in the story. As I said earlier, it was most likely that some who sang about Jesus' entering into the city would have jeered at him on the cross, right? And even if they weren't there, at least Peter was there, right? And he denies Jesus, which is just as bad, right? So what happens to those people? What happens to the people who are with Jesus until they realized what it might cost and they left him? Well, as many of you are aware, after Jesus rose from the dead, um, he comes to his followers, he talks to them, he leaves, and he gives them the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Peter's life changes instantly, begins to preach the gospel in the same courtyards where Jesus is killed, right? And so every... Um, commentary that I would read on the book of Acts. You guys know the parts in Acts where they start to preach the gospel to the crowds. And what does it say? Thousands come to them daily, right? Every commentary says that there would have been people who would have been jeering at him at the cross, be part of those thousands of people that come to know him just a few days later, right? Which means some of the same people who sang for Jesus, who jeered at Jesus, became followers of Jesus. There was not one of them that was far too gone, Church. There was not one of us that is far too gone. How incredibly obvious is it in this case that Jesus is the powerful King who calls him back who calls us back to Himself and the merciful King that welcomes us back. Let us rest on, meditate, believe in King Jesus. Let us consider him in his humility, in his mercy in his power, in his saving grace, in his ability to take on the penalty of death and three days later conquer death. Let us consider Jesus because he has considered us.